Welcome back to There Will Be Movies. This is our podcast discussing 25 of our favourite movies from any given decade. This is our third volume following the 2000s and the 2010s. We are covering 25 of our favourite movies from the 90s. We are now two weeks into 1996 and we are covering The Wachowskis Bound. Matthew, why are we not discussing The Matrix? Benjamin, I will direct you back, as I have many a time, to the conception of the podcast and the rules you laid out, which explicitly stated nothing that's already been covered on the website, which immediately dealt me a crippling blow, as I desperately wanted to discuss things like Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which is one of my five favourite movies. And yet, it was taken from me due to a Christmas special that I did with one Mike Thomas, who was the arbiter of whether things count as a film or not, and because I also did a podcast called The Sky Scorchers, available at entotherealworld.com, covering all of the Matrix and the Animatrix. That did mean the Matrix was robbed, or it was taken away from us as an option to cover in the 90s, despite us being massive, massive Matrix stands. I guess you can talk about the Matrix for two uninterrupted minutes if you would like, but uh, yeah, sorry. So you must settle for Bound, which... Eh, you can do worse than Bound. I mean, Bound fucking rules. <laughs> like, like let's let's get this right. I mean, like, I love the Wachowskis. I think this might be my second favorite Wachowski movie. It's like this or Cloud Atlas on my mm. number two. <laughs> Although I might be I might be besmirching Speed Racer there. Yeah, much, I feel but... like Speed Racer is the one that everyone else uh, is like. This is the second best or whatever. Wachowskis make a lot of good movies, even if people mm. don't think they make good movies. <laughs> I don't know about that, to be honest. There are four movies by them I would say are, like, really fucking good. To be fair, actually, they haven't made that many movies, and if we assume Jupiter Ascending is the only one people are in agreement, they hate it. Yeah, I mean, I, I do, yeah, Jupiter I, Ascending is, like, the, the consensus, like, this is their weakest movie. I haven't seen Cloud Atlas. Cloud Atlas was playing silently on the screens at my place of employment. That seems what? wrong. Is there anything in Cloud Atlas that we shouldn't show? Yes, okay. absolutely. Okay, well, it seems that we did anyway. So I would glance up at the screen every now and then and see what was going on. I'm like, what the fuck is going on in this goddamn movie? Lots of stuff. It's it's very good. I do like okay. Cloud Atlas. Well, maybe with sound on and actually seeing it uninterrupted rather than glancing at it every three minutes or whatever, maybe it is good. I mean, I think, that I would mean the... you're looking at Bound, The Matrix, The Matrix Reloaded, The Matrix Revolution, Speed Racer, and Cloud Atlas, all good. Jupiter Ascending, bad. I like Sense8. I've only seen the first season, but I really, Same. really liked it. With trepidation, I will at some point explore the later seasons. Is it, did they get two seasons? Or they got three? two seasons and, and they, they got, got a wrap-up movie. movie. A, yeah, okay. And, the and they recast is... someone and just didn't explain that? Or... Yes, because okay. he may have said some transphobic stuff ah. to directors and whatnot. So. Excellent. And then, like, Sense8 Season 2, they bring on David Mitchell, mm-hmm. who obviously wrote the book of Cloud Atlas, and now right. David Mitchell is also helping to write Matrix Resurrections. So, like, they've, they've got, like, a little group of people they like to work with, because obviously, like, Sense8 was also directed by Tom Twyker. Oh, and... that's how you say that. <laughs> sorry, no, sorry. Tom Tom Tyquan uh, and James Mateague, who directed V for Vendetta, which obviously a lot of people are like, ooh, are you sure the Wachowskis didn't direct V for Vendetta? And it's like, no, they just wrote it. They might, they maybe were on set and like did second unit direction, but like the movie is mostly James Mateague. But anyway, the Wachowskis are interesting filmmakers in that they are very unsubtle. Yeah. <laughs> in t- like, true. like ev- everything is kind of like very nakedly like broad. And then like the things that are subtle are like the most nerdy shit 
imaginable. Like, I mean, what we shared the thing the other day from the Matrix where the Oracle gives Neo a cookie before she'll speak to him sure, because she's sure, a computer sure, program. Sure. Like, it, it's, <laughs> those are the kind of, like, subtle things they do are like, what if we include a cookie reference or what if... Seraph is a, is a, is a login screen. Yeah, he's a login screen. <laughs> yeah. And Neo has to put the password in. The, all... the role that Jet Li was too good for. But yeah, like, they're, they're incredibly broad filmmakers and a lot of the stuff they do is very heightened emotionally mm. and I think that is a turn off for some people to like watch these movies and go like why on earth are people like kind of being so openly emotional about some of the stuff that they do yeah, there's a there's a broadness to a lot of their filmography that I enjoy and some people kind of get turned off by the almost earnestness of it all yeah I suppose it is all very melodramatic I mean it's not melodramatic because like there are literally mobsters and murder happening but even before any of that is introduced it is very like save me I'm like okay let's all yeah. calm the fuck down you've known her for 30 seconds but yeah. but, I mean, it's interesting to watch this movie because obviously this is a lot of the same creative team that goes on to do The Matrix like Bill Pope they find he basically like their original choice for cinematography for this movie drops out at the last second and basically is like you cannot make the movie that you want to make for six million dollars I don't know anyone who will be able to do it and then Bill Pope shows up and goes like, I can do it and now <laughs> Bill Pope is like one of the biggest cinematographers in, in cinema and yeah. is like he does The Matrix which does, is and- why it's concerning that Bill Pope will not be returning for for, uh, what is the reboot Matrix called? Is it Resurrection? Res- Resurrections. Okay, okay. I feel, I probably did know that, and it's just completely vanished from my head. But yeah, it's Matrix 4, and, and like, you know, at the time of this recording, I mean, it, it won't be out by the time you hear this by any means, but it, it'll be closer to being out. The trailer, like, the only trailer that currently exists, just does not infuse me visually in the way that the older ones did. I'm on board with all the weird Neo has amnesia type plot they're doing, but like the action scenes don't seem special in a way that all of... Like, you can say what you want about Revolutions. There's still... For the few moments there is action, it still looks like it always did. Like, you know, the entryway to the club fight has all the hallmarks of the earlier films, but it just looks like every action movie, and I assume that is down to not having Bill Pope, who bounced to go do Shang-Chi and other stuff. I mean, yeah, so, so, I mean, so Bill Pope obviously spent the last couple of years doing various interesting projects like his 2019 where he's got The Kid Who Would Be King which is Joe Cornish's follow-up to follow-up to Attack the Block you've got Alita Battle Angel the Robert Rodriguez movie and Charlie's Angels is like a weird like all of the movies look good but they're definitely and some of them are even stylized to a degree but like it's a far cry away from like what he's doing in in Scott Pilgrim or Spider-Man 2 or the Matrix movies so John Toll is doing Matrix Matrix Resurrections who was like the, the cinematographer on the first episode of Breaking Bad who was the, the director of photography for all of Sense8, Jupiter okay. Ascending, Iron Man 3, Cloud Atlas. Okay. Uh, like, so he's, he's kind of the regular uh, Wachowski cinematographer now at this yeah. point, but he's definitely not as visually... Uh, yeah, I just have that fear that like the action will be far more generic. And like, you know, I, if all they did was come back with a generic story and cool action, that wouldn't be enough. It has to be the other way around. They have to have a very cool story to revisit The Matrix like 20 years later and the action will just be what it'll be. But yeah, it doesn't look great. I, I see I, they had a falling out, Bill Pope and the Wachowskis, on the set I mean, of two and three. Yeah, I mean, they've not worked together since. Obviously, they've got yeah. this new... Uh, John Toll is their new guy, but yeah, um, yeah. Uh, yeah, it, well. it, it's, it's interesting. We'll see. I think it, more than anything, it just in my head, it slots it more into what the Wachowskis have been doing post yeah. The Matrix rather than what they were doing 
pre the Matrix, which is obviously like this kind of stuff where it's Bill Pope comes in, says he can do it for six million dollars, and basically they remake the noir formula. And obviously, like you can tell, this movie is cheap because it's filmed in in one set, pretty much. Like <laughs> if, they, if they do visit anywhere else, yeah. it's very briefly, or it's some external shots that I, they kind of like, are doing on a gated car park, essentially. Yeah, I mean, I, I I'm sure that is to lower costs, but I actually like that about it. That I, I'm a sucker for a movie with like a limited number of locations or a movie that plays out across the course of one day or anything like that that is like a a self-imposed challenge or I suppose this is because of budget. I mean, you do see Corky goes to a bar but other than that, everything is in that apartment block or immediately outside it kind of thing. And I I actually dig that about it for sure. It's been interesting because I've kind of watched three movies this weekend, all of which are kind of very focused on an apartment or a like Mm -hmm. living space set. Like I watched The Souvenir 2 at LFF, which is very much focused on this kind of like flat set that they built for the first movie. And then I watched Prince of Darkness, John Carpenter's movie, where he's got $3 million to make it and he does some wild shit for only three million dollars in 1986 like way more wild stuff than the the Wachowskis are doing on this movie but again like it's limited locations very much focused in this one place and then you've got this and it's like it kind of like made me really excited for movies because it's like look at these all of these filmmakers having to battle against like lack of budget they don't have the ability to come back and like film green screen backgrounds of every single shot and come back and fill them in later they're having to do everything on this like limited budget limited time frame let's get everything done with a very limited cast because obviously like what this movie there's functionally really only three actors that we have to talk about (laughs) for this a shame that christopher maloney's role isn't bigger quite frankly but the man with the biggest butt in Hollywood. Yes, double-cheeked up every day. <laughs> a remarkable photo, if you know what we're talking about. Yeah, yeah, it is, it is a, a three-hander, if such a thing exists. It feels like a play, to be honest, and it feels something that could easily be turned into a play. Well, I mean, um, but that, that's, that comes from, like, you see all the people who are comparing it to Tarantino, I assume because there's violence <laughs> and sex. Yes. More than anything <laughs> He else. invented both of these things. <laughs> Comparing it to the Coen brothers, which makes sense because they are the other filmmakers who are kind of working in slightly skewed noir films at this point in time. Because obviously Fargo has only just come out and that's kind of their last noir movie for a while because their immediate follow-up to that is Big Lebowski, as we covered last Mm -hmm, week. mm -hmm. And then it's Hitchcock. He can do a movie in a in a small set, close location, yeah, limited number of people. I mean, all all fair, I suppose, and that would make sense. That the parts that bother me are the just wanton violence by Joey Pants <laughs> towards the like. It's fucked up because like decades and decades of men hitting women on screen, you would think it would make us somewhat desensitized, but there is a degree of violence to the way he punches women in this film that is really, really unnerving. And bravo, I suppose, to still be able to shock in that way. Um, and it sucks that it is used for shock value so much, but like he fully like cups the back of her head and absolutely fucking cold cocks her unconscious. And it's like, Jesus Christ, man. That's the stuff where I'm like, hmm could have done with less of this and that would make sense because I don't like Quentin so yeah we've got lots to say about all of these things in particular Joey Pants <laughs> I think uh, so let's let's do some context around this movie I've already mentioned uh, made for a budget of six million dollars box office ultimately worldwide only about seven million dollars so not a huge runaway hit but obviously as we've alluded to basically this entire creative team gets to come back three years later to make the Matrix I don't know what it is about this that gets them the Matrix like I think Silver is involved in it to 
some degree and basically yeah there's some story that this was their audition to make a bigger budget movie but the Wachowskis have claimed that's bollocks and I don't know there is certainly some some matrix in it which we'll talk about in a minute but a weird one it's if they say it's not true I believe them that it's not true but I could see how that could be true because it is very much like right you will have two locations and piss all money off you go they made something with, with two locations and piss all money. It's just fascinating to think that they gave given ten million more dollars filming Australia for the Matrix. So like, like they, not only are they not filming because obviously they are quite San Francisco based filmmakers. Like you watch Sensei, and obviously Sensei takes an awful lot of time in in yeah. in San Francisco. And obviously, Matrix Resurrections is set in San Francisco rather than whatever the generic city is. Like you know, it feels more New York inspired or whatever. But yeah, and, and obviously this movie is very in touch with the San Francisco gay scene, right down to having Susie Bright be on set for the the lesbian uh, scenes. But yeah, like they get ten times the budget to do the Matrix after. Like, I mean, obviously we've we've complained in these kind of like superhero movies where it's like they pluck someone who's only done a micro-budget indie movie that was critically acclaimed and then you thrust them into doing the it's, next superhero movie. I suppose the difference would be the Wachowskis brought them the concept of the Matrix. It was their idea. They had all of the research and the sketches and, and everything ready to go rather than we're making The Matrix 7, we have plucked you from Bound and are shoving you on it to keep the budget slightly lower, bring it in it on time and everything. Yeah, we, we've pre-vised everything, whereas the, the yeah. Wachowskis, like, they, they storyboard every single thing before they go into all yeah. of these movies. Like Everything is like, there's no ad-lib, there's no... They have like watched that. Ghost in the Shell thoroughly. <laughs> but yeah, so, at some wider context, how did this movie do in its opening weekend, Matthew? Not fantastically, unfortunately. A lot of movies opening this weekend. I guess October is a good time to open a movie. You know, summer is not a good time, so I guess we're ramping back up. But of the top 20, eight are brand new movies. At number one is The First Wives Club and in its third week. Then you've got The Glimmer Man, that thing you do in D3 Mighty Ducks, all opening. Extreme Measures, Two Days in the Valley, Last Man Standing, Fly Away Home, Independent. Then it's 14th week. Big night. I have still not said bound. That is because it is at number 12, making less than a million dollars domestic. 900 grand. And just ahead of First Kid and Crash. Although, interestingly, it's got the one of the higher kind of like person averages, if you're looking at it. I think you know what you're doing. You are very much courting a certain demographic. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Like, you open this in a set number of cities and you're probably going to do decently. I mean, you look yeah. at Crash. Crash opened on 30, 42 screens mm-hmm. this week and made $18,000 average per cinema. Like, a crazy number. Mm. Yeah. Not bad crash, good crash. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, you know, Bound. It was never going to be a box office smash, was it? Like... It's, just, it's just, I mean, obviously this movie's kind of stuck around. It's become a LGBT cult classic. Of course. In an awful lot of ways. as An instruction is, manual. It's completely understandable. But again, like, you think that like, literally their next movie changes cinema forever. Not hyperbolic. I think possibly the biggest movie to ever happen. At least in terms of like big blockbuster action movies. I, I don't think cinema ever change, ever recovers from The Matrix. Like I feel like The Matrix is kind of the template that most blockbuster movies right. follow after this. Even and I, if and I think that's by... why the fourth one doesn't look that same, because everyone's doing that now. You know, it, it just, it could be a Fast and Furious movie. It could be Tom Cruise's latest ill-guided sci-fi movie. Like it, it just looks like everything is the problem. And that's because of 
what a towering legacy they established, where everyone used to be playing catch-up. Unless you go out and find somebody that has not been exposed to, to mainstream audiences who's got revolutionary ideas about fight choreography and action choreography, um, you're just not going to blow minds in the way that you did in 99 and then 2003. They both came out, those two yes, sequels? Yes, yes. How wild they came out in the same year. Anyway. Let's go over, so we're still in 1996. Obviously last week we covered the Oscars, but mm. as we'd like to do, we'd like to break down some other movies that are critically acclaimed from each year. So for 1996, the movies are Breaking the Waves, Last One Trier, Fargo, A Moment of Innocence, Train Spotting, Danny Boyle's uh, Toilet Diving Epic, <laughs> Crash and Bound are all movies that critics are kind of loving in the years after this. It's yeah. an interesting year that's basically full of like auteurs doing probably like their defining work across the board. Apart from Last One Trio, where I don't think Breaking the Waves is like the movie that people think about for him, but like Fargo, Secrets and Lies. David I mean David Cronenberg's got a lot of options for what his is gonna be, but I feel like Crash is like a special place in a lot of people's hearts as well. But yeah, I mean it, it's an interesting year at the cinema. It definitely feels like that era of like here's the new generation of auteur filmmakers, because you've got like the Coens, you've got the Wachowskis, you've got Boyle, who are all making these kind of not huge blockbuster movies, but kind of like riffing on old genres or doing interesting things that you're not really seeing in big studio movies at this point. I, I feel '96 was a was a big year for the blockbusters that are not going to make that list you just read out because I mean I feel part of that list exists to kind of point out some stuff that missed the cut that we're not going to be podcasting about. Um, not entirely, but '96 was one of the years. Where like god how do we not pick seven films or something mm. and several of those i would say we actually wouldn't have had in the running but um there were definitely a lot of like just like big ass movies uh, that came out in 96 that i don't know if you would call it like the return of the blockbuster if blockbusters ever really went away but big year for it we have instead gone for fargo this and then something else coming next week <laughs> that, <laughs> which i mean it should be fairly obvious where we are in the year what the next movie is going to be <laughs> to be honest we'll see, we'll see. <clears throat> You find out that in about forty-five minutes, <laughs> right? So let's let's dive into the plot of this movie. So mm-hmm. this movie is very much a neo neo noir, but basically, the <laughs> did you did you say neo on purpose? I know it is a neo noir, but like. <laughs> Pun intended. No, pun not intended. Pun okay. definitely not intended. But but the, okay. but obviously the thing that the Wachowskis do with this to put a spin on the formula is mm. we're going to make the central couple lesbians. Yes. Is and not to say that that should be treated as like a revolutionary thing, no. but it does give a wildly different energy to pretty much everything in this movie mm. in the context of the Wachowskis' own personal lives. It's <laughs> kind of a fascinating thing. Yeah, um, I I can only imagine. In 1996, when they are billed as the Wachowski brothers, and then t- someone telling you where their lives will go, it'll be like, ah. But at the time, it's like, hmm, the, these, two, these two cis men have, have very much made like an, an oddly authentic lesbian experience. Oh, oh okay. And the fact that they choose Susie Bright and like, oh, they're big yeah. fans of Susie Bright's work. It's like, oh, so they're reading mm-hmm. feminist writings and sex education from, from women, which I feel like is mm-hmm. definitely not a thing that a lot of men were doing around this time. No. Uh, like, it's, it's, such a, it's such a fascinating thing where it's like, oh, all these things that you're fans of. Hmm, that's very interesting that you're fans of this. Yes, isn't it just? And the way you're framing all of this, beyond just, like, getting the, the sex scene like quote unquote right the way they shoot the women leading up to it it's very like okay there is a 
infinitely more feminine touch here than I would expect if insert name of male filmmaker was making this where it would all be tits and ass and like low-cut dresses and all this sort of stuff yeah i mean like what we, we've discussed lesbian sex scenes before on this podcast we did handmaiden which mm-hmm. gets dangerously close towards getting porny yes. in the way that it does its sex scene yes. and obviously the kind of point to that is as we discussed in the episode one of these people has been so desensitized that this is the way that she thinks that sex is sure you have that get out clause. <laughs> yes. Whereas something like Blue is the Warmest Colour doesn't, where it is literally just a tits and ass movie in which both lead actresses came away saying they felt uncomfortable in the way that those scenes were shot. Lovely. Um, yes. You love to see it. And and the fact that both of his follow-up movies are basically just gyrating butts for like three hours. <laughs> Not a good yeah. filmmaker. No. <laughs> no. Uh, but but then you come to the Wachowskis who, again, this is one of the first instances that I can recall of hearing about an intimacy coordinator, obviously made yeah. very famous after... HBO needed one. <laughs> no, not after HBO needed one. God, oh. okay, uh, after after Normal People last year, the BBC show, obviously a lot of the, product, the parameter on that show is based on the fact that they had an intimacy coordinator doing all the sex scenes, and you watch that show and you're like, yes, these do feel like real people having sex. I feel and but didn't HBO have one before that for... Possibly. Like, towards the end of Game of Thrones after yeah. many complaints towards the beginning of Game of Thrones well, from I think actors. it's interesting like you look at so Ita O'Brien did the intimacy coordination on normal people and I think she is now like the default person that you get if you are going to to do stuff on movies so like since normal people she's worked with uh, I May Destroy You Sex Education Brave New World interesting. Conversation with Friends like she but like Halo Vikings Corner the market there yeah. yeah basically I go around and make sure that your sex scenes are good yeah and all of those shows do get it right and like you know like you can see how people might be like this is all just point you know the crowd that the weirdly puritanical twitter crowd that are like sex adds nothing to the story it's like you could not be more wrong like some stories are about sex and also sex is a thing that people do and to pretend otherwise is fucking dumb so i watched this with my partner for the first time last night and like literally the first conversation that Corky and Violet have where (laughs) Violet invites herself over with the cup of coffee and they are just standing there having a conversation. They're not touching or anything. But are they though? (laughs) <laughs> and and like literally like Violet leaves the flat and she my partner just said to me and said like my god that was the hottest thing I've ever seen in my yeah, life yeah they are so uh, the first like 25 minutes of this might be the horniest cinema I've ever made <laughs> in a good way saying this is going to make me sound like I'm being a creepy male perv but like I think the first 25 minutes are more enjoyable than when it gets really out into the weeds on the whole crime conspiracy aspect that they knew what they were doing when they cast Jennifer Tilly the breathiest voice goes Going like every word out of her mouth is like, please fuck me, Corky. Please, please, please fuck me. <laughs> Men don't know how to fuck me. Please fuck me properly. It's in those scenes. It's like the way that a cam- the camera lingers on hands and calves and parts of the body that straight men don't really consider when they just point a camera at a pair of tits. Fetishizing that that Corky like works with her hands. They've both got short hair, she's covered in tattoos, she's covered in like grime and grease, she's exclusively wearing tank tops, like all of this. Like it is very like it's not the Hollywood lesbian <laughs> who is you know, very different to this. Um, yeah, I mean, but... I mean, obviously, like, there's all kinds of things in this movie that are, like, subtle LGBT lesbian cues. Like, you have the fact that whenever Violet is around the mafia, she's wearing 
like low cut tops or dresses mm-hmm. or things to make her look more feminine. But then when she goes to see Corky in her apartment, she's wearing jeans. Yeah. Just to kind of like highlight that like she is a closeted lesbian. She is not a bisexual woman. She is like I do this because this is what I know how to do with my life. Like is the interesting thing with her. And as you said, like hands as being a sexy part of the body, yeah. which. I think is is definitely not just a lesbian thing, but definitely no, a, no. a feminine I think it's thing. A fe- exactly that, yeah. It, it's a thing that when a woman is fixated on a man's hands, and like I remember being like a teenager and like, hands? And then it's like, oh! <laughs> I, mean, like, I mean, I remember a friend of mine telling me that like when that one of her favourite things to do in the world is to watch her partner drive his car. Right, yeah. Because obviously it's such a manual hand thing. Yeah. Where it's like, it's, it's not even like a sexy thing, but it's... Or like yeah. it's not a sexy thing on the face of it, but because it's very tactile in that way, it does. It's very, it it's very yeah. gripping, and you know, yeah, like, and like you'll see women thirsting over. Like, have you seen the the man that cuts trees? Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, of course. And I think men, cis men, are like, oh, it's because he's got giant arms. I'm like, you know, I, I'm sure that doesn't, that isn't a turn off. But I think it's more look at his fucking hands. <laughs> kind of thing look at him doing things with his hands and they're like oh muscles they like muscles i'll just get buff as shit and you know some women are into that as well but i think they are missing the the finer point there yeah i mean um, i mean i literally recommended a friend watch the movie lock with tom hardy because it's just tom <laughs> hardy in like short sleeve shirt driving yeah. a car for 90 minutes yeah <laughs> I did enjoy Locke, but forever disappointed by my own expectations and predictions. I'm like, there's a body in that trunk, or like <laughs> something like that is going on. But like, no, he's just a man driving. Yeah, but I mean, I love reading all the stuff about like kind of yeah. what the imagery is going for in this movie. Obviously, like I think my favorite one is Susie Bright describes this movie is very wet. <laughs> yeah. like obviously, like, everyone's that, just come out of the shower it's a dank apartment like, block yeah like yeah. even even in like kind of the first scene that Corky and Violet have together in the apartment before they they, they mm. have sex or have sexual contact for the first time it's focused on Corky changing the U-bend on the pipes yeah. and the water coming out and flowing down her and all the rest of it and Get then hearing back for her yeah. yes exactly yeah. compared to like when when men <laughs> sexuality it's all as you say like it's hard it's muscles it's <laughs> it's those kind of things like it's not there isn't a softness to anything mm-hmm. and I think I mean even even during the sex scene which obviously both completely naked in this mm-hmm. sex scene but the movie takes its goddamn time getting to show you yeah a, a, like ac- the actual nudity that men would pay for well yeah and like <laughs> yeah exactly that like it's not that there are no nipples or anything like you know the, the thing that the men are sitting there like show um kind of thing <laughs> it's just that it's treated so casually you pan all the way around them uh in a in an incredibly well shot 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 and then when you finally get there, it's like they creep in at the very top of the frame, and then you just go past them, and it's like, yeah. that moment is far less hot than everything else going on in the preceding few seconds, and... and, and... Yeah, I mean, it's the little things, like the, the sweat on Gina Gershon yeah. is like, as everything's going on, I mean, everything I've heard is that, like, this is Jennifer Tilly's favourite role that she's ever played. <laughs> I couldn't find much on what Gina Gershon was saying. Obviously, Gina Gershon's got like a weird career where like this is her follow up to to Showgirls mm. in a lot of ways, um, <laughs> and like she obviously has this kind of like really fucking good nineties to Gina Gershon, one of the like sexiest women in the world. And then she does does this movie, and then she kind of disappears. Like she's coming back recently, but I feel like a lot of the stuff that she does, Brooklyn Nine-Nine. now. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, but it, it tends to be playing off of like her image in the nineties. Yeah, more than anything. Well, so like yeah. Ted Lasso dropped the whole. Uh, are you up on Ted Lasso? Or? I'm up on Ted Lasso. Okay, what's the finale? Brief spoilers on Ted Lasso. Roy reveals he briefly dated Gina Gershon in the nineties, to which Ted says that makes me happy. <laughs> Incredible. Interesting to learn that Jennifer Tilly, as far as I can tell, is a straight woman, given how naturally she takes to this and identifying this as her favourite role. Um, but hey, it's a fantastic scene. Um, other filmmakers take notes, quite frankly. Um, and again, every time I praise a sex scene as an unfortunate cishet man, I am like, ugh. Don't be a pervert. But, like, it's just objectively a well shot. And, like, they want it to be hot. And it is. Yeah. Mission accomplished. Yeah, the whole point of this movie is, like, well, how can we... And, like, this is kind of, like, what I get the feeling of, like, your joint issue with this movie is the stuff that you're enjoying is the stuff that is corky and violet flirting, which does go out the window when They're just charismatic as hell, and then suddenly it becomes a crime drama. And, like, aspects of that crime drama are really good. I just think... I guess we didn't really do the broad strokes. I just think it gets bogged down in that section for far too long. And I don't know if, if Gina Gershon did something thing or was busy but i feel like she fucking disappears for like 30 minutes and i was like oh okay. yeah and, and, and i think that's you you love the chemistry between gina gershon and yeah, Jennifer Tilly. yeah, yeah. i'm not and, like I, I want this movie to be entirely these two fucking or anything like that but like just the balance shifts dramatically and then it basically becomes the joey pants movie for a good 45 minutes to an hour and then corky is basically just every if you see her like listening through a wall or a, a drain every ten minutes, then that's that's it. Like she's just she is just on pause until it's her time again. And I'm like, oh, where have you gone? Whereas, whereas my flip side is like, I think Joe Pants is like obviously Gershon and Tilly are great in this, but yeah. Joe Pants is. <laughs> I... For those not au fait with with the nickname Joe Pantoliano, uh, Pantoliano even, yes, Joey, Joey Pants should have won an Oscar for this. He's yeah. so fucking good. He he is fantastic. I'm not I'm not I'm not criticizing that. I just think it goes on for longer than it perhaps should. Or... No, but yeah, I mean the movie the movie is taking away its kind of like big central weapon, which as I was saying is like this movie needs to shortcut a lot of its character creation, and the men are a lot easier because it's a Matthew movie. You we, yeah, exactly. we we have a we we have a cultural shared concept of of what mobsters are, and, yeah. and uh, they and very whilst, much fulfil it. And whilst we have an idea of what a mobster's wife is like, obviously that is <laughs> an incredibly popular trope that you have in so many movies in the run-up to this like yeah. goodfellas marriage to the mob the godfather like it, it's a it's a well-worn trope at this point yeah. what is interesting is that like obviously violet has to do something different to that and obviously to shortcut that you basically just go like well we're just going to play off the fact that these two are really horny for each other that's the character development of these two characters is <laughs> these two people are so horny that they are willing to like blow up their prospective lives to steal <laughs> two million dollars from the wave each other like that's that's what we're going to do here yeah i i do enjoy that as a character motivation in my because movies everything is so heightened and you are having to lay out and resolve a story in 90 minutes frequently the driving forces so horny have become too dumb to make sensible decisions <laughs> will do anything and that is very much what happens here one of the defining be gay do crime movies i just wish they'd found some kind of way to either keep cutting to because it does play with non-linear time 
Uh, like you, and I think we'll talk about it in a moment. But like you know, the opening is is not the beginning, and you do have the occasional sort of like they're planning it, and then you see how it actually went, and then there's more of them planning it. I wish there was they'd found a way to do that a bit more, so that you don't just have like I don't know if it actually is thirty straight minutes, but it feels like half an hour of no Corky whatsoever, other than the occasional she's listening. But yeah, that opening scene more than any other part of the movie is so matrixy, and I mean a huge part is Don Davis does the music for both this and the Matrix trilogy it's hauntingly identical (laughs) the kind of music he's playing with the cues I wish I had a better musical vernacular so that I could express it properly but like the sort of rising horns kind of like the subtle like and like even like the way the camera is like following I guess like a pipe Oh, so I, it's gone from my head already. But like, I mean, the, the opening shot of the movie is coming down the like light chain. Yeah, and uh, it feels very like when the camera is following the tunnel system of, of the real world, or like following a phone line. And again, you have shared motifs of like there is an obsession with these incredibly loud, antiquated phones. I'm not saying there were no like rotary. Are they rotary phones? Is that what you call them? Dial. You know, with the some of them are rotary phones. Some of them are like the obviously the one that Jennifer Tilly uses the most of the time is is a. A normal keypad. Okay, but I think yeah, want, but I mean, you know, the, these phones that feel a little bit out of time, and they are the loudest thing in the world, is present in both the decor. I mean, I know the Matrix is supposed to be set in the nineties. I mean, the, the Matrix parts are supposed to be styled after after the nineties, but like the decor of the apartment building here is damn near identical to the building where they all get trapped in. Whether it's the deja vu when they change the building and everything, just sort of like the shitty wallpaper that's peeling, and yeah, just so much of it is so matrixy and and even some of that dialogue that you hear foreshadowed as Corky is tied up even that sounds like something that you could hear Trinity saying to Neo or whatever (laughs) it's just yeah to me it was just striking having not seen it in a while and having seen the matrix relatively recently as well I was like oh geez this is this is so similar just funny to me (laughs) I mean it it does feel like it is a way to keep Corky involved in the plot because obviously I think it kind of lessens a lot of the stuff is like it's kind of whilst it's a great opening shot the the continual returns to it without the context of how she gets to it kind of detract a little bit from I like it as an opening I wish they didn't come back to it yeah because there's tension in so much other stuff but when ultimately like she's trapped in the closet it's ultimately not that much of a movie (laughs) wrong person trapped in the closet there but um, I mean, yeah, that is that is fundamentally why it's there. Is yeah. the metaphor of this movie is look at how people are trapped inside their own little boxes. Like mm-hmm. Violet is both in the closet and trapped in the mob. Caesar at the end is trapped in his own mind in terms of like what's yeah. going on there. Like it, it, it has it's all incredibly homophobic ideas pent up in his head. I mean that that opening scene with him walking in on Corky and Violet like having sex on the sofa. <laughs> He's like, oh, oh, oh I, th- I thought it was a man. I was about to be angry. <laughs> no way that two women could be having sex. No, oh, God, no. Oh, jeez. Come over whenever you want. Here's some hush money. I assume he's paying her off because it's like mafia stuff happens here sometimes. Keep your fucking mouth shut. Yeah. But yeah, like, and especially because of, again, how she dresses, how it's all coded. And he's like, oh, sorry, it's so dark in here. I thought you were a dude, basically. <laughs> they stop short of saying that. But like, yeah, he's like, oh, okay. I thought, never mind. As you said, like, that opening encounter between them is so... And, like, she is basically saying without saying, I know you heard us having sex, I wanted you to hear, basically. Yeah, the walls are so thin, could you maybe not do the power tools and stuff? And labouring on words like curious. 
it knows what it's doing, all of this stuff. And then basically, as like, it then basically becomes a big heist movie where, yeah. the, I mean, the actual heist is over very quickly where she negotiates, like, I love her <laughs> earrings. I love the way that she uses her lockpicking tools as earrings is so fucking good. Yeah. Um, obviously, she breaks in, she, she puts, them, puts the money in some bags, puts the newspapers in, and then gets out in, like, record time at all. I love this opening stretch of them laying out what the con is going to be, yeah. where it's like everything goes to goes to plan. Violet breaks the bottle of whiskey, goes out to get some more. She slips in and steals the money while he's in the shower. They make it look as though his sort of mob rival Johnny slipped in and stole the money. I do like that it's like it's meticulously planned out. And then like every good heist movie, there's that one element that just doesn't go as you thought it would. Where they and, predict and, and, Caesar and will run. Yeah, it's such a human element where it's like she has not got to get to know Caesar that well and doesn't understand <laughs> A how paranoid he is and B how much he hates Johnny are the other two things where it's like he sat there going like I can't run because then they'll think I did it. Yeah. Therefore I need to make Johnny pay for this. Initially, I was, like, fully down with it. And it's not like I, I hate any of the scenes that follow. Like, they're all good. It's just, I think it... I like balance in a movie, I guess is what I'm, I'm saying. And, like, and especially as it's, like, a three-hander for, for one of the hands to disappear for so long is what bothers me. But, you know, there is so much tension in, like, you know, him and Johnny both being like, no, go on, you open the case. And we know there's nothing in the... Like, it's all just newspapers. And just sort of the tension of that is incredible. Like, at one point, the cops come around because he's... He fucking murders three people in this apartment building, with which we've already established has thin walls. So of course the police arrive, and you know he, them being in the apartment while he's narrowly covering it all up is all tense as hell. Everything about that, because obviously like there's so much tension in the scene with with Johnny and Gino and <laughs> everything like that, where. Obviously, that's like the first shocking, violent moment in the movie where. Yeah. yeah. Well, with, with they do torture <clears throat> Shelley in the bathroom. Oh, first. yes. yes. And they establish the that, like, Corky can hear through the toilets, basically. Uh, yeah, that's when apparently Barry Keebell apparently, like, actually hurt his head because they actually hit his head against the toilet. You can tell. <laughs> I don't know if, like, Maloney fucked up. Yeah, that man's face definitely bounced off that toilet. Yeah, and then obviously, I mean, everything in that scene where it's like it's just going round and round and round, and then. Joey Pantaloni just kind of makes, uh, takes a big decision. Makes, <laughs> makes a split decision, shoots the guy in the chest, and then everything goes to shit from there. I will like, also say a part <laughs> of it that like I think could have used some work, and and it's because as you said they have to take a lot of shortcuts. It's like trying to establish what the hierarchy is here. Like, is Gino higher up than Mickey? Are they parallel? Are they equal? Like, it's presented as Gino is kind of untouchable. Therefore, as much as he hates Johnny, he can never actually do anything to Johnny because Gino is untouchable. But then he fucking kills Gino. <laughs> and then he's worried Mickey is going to find out. And it's like, if you killed all of these people, what happens to you? Does someone come for you, a la Goodfellas? Or... I mean, I assume it's, I assume it's that case. It's like, if five people go missing, then it's, like, <laughs> it's a big deal. Like, you have to cover yourself up so assuredly and come up with a cover story for why five people have gone missing, essentially. But I, I love... Days, you know, moments after visiting you <laughs> I love the shot after Gino gets shot mm -hmm. where it's just Joey Pants stood there with the gun mm -hmm. and then the, the bullet hole skims out behind him and hits the, the picture behind him just such a I mean obviously that's Bill Puck's magic and the aerial shot above as he as he's shooting him and everything again it all feels very forerunner to the Matrix the way some of that gunplay is slowed right down and everything and treating a gun as like a colossal weapon as opposed to just a thing we see and I have no data to verify this but 
We probably see a gun at some point every single day in our lives through various media. Yeah, overwhelmingly TV and and movies at this point and games are the things that show the most guns. But yeah, like it's just a a conscious thing. But it's so interesting to watch this, especially in the presence of Matrix, where the guns, yes, they are massive forces of destruction, Mm. more so of the environment than of people. But then this (laughs) movie completely flips it, where like guns are just like they're squibs everywhere, blood flying everywhere. I mean, there's so much blood in this movie, right down yeah. to like the, the the excellent scene where Joe <laughs> Pants is like cleaning the money off. Yeah, he washes the money, irons and hangs every individual note, and and. <laughs> Violet basically without saying it basically it's probably the thing he's done that's turned me on the most since I've met him is him just meticulously counting and cleaning this money (laughs) and not sleeping and not taking a shower Um, yeah yeah, but the the movie just like ramps up the amount of blood I think it's interesting but obviously it lends to so much of the tension in the following scenes like when you get to the cop scene where they've done this like very half-assed job of like moving things around like the light shade in place of the picture that's missing is so when you know why he's done it Mm. it's so obvious that like there's a bullet hole there but like you probably wouldn't notice it if you went around to a new apartment for the first time you wouldn't notice that they had five pictures arranged in a c-shape and then a random lamp blocking some of the picture picture frames yeah or like the scene where the police officer stands on the carpet that they pulled to cover up the blood flow and like his foot descends mm. into the blood. You're like, God, would you not feel your heel <laughs> descend and make the squish mm. or the hidden bodies the buffer? Like just so much tension from that first cop scene, which is interesting because it's like it's not tension that you're worried that they're gonna get found out because you kind of want Caesar to get found out. Yeah. It's like, are these cops good enough to realise the kind of like really bad ways in which he's covering up for this that are so obvious because we've been in that apartment yeah, for so yeah, long. Yeah. I love her stalling for time for him and like, how do I know you're the police? <laughs> kind of stuff. Like, refusing to let them up. And then, you know, to his credit, he's very smart. Like, you know, he turns that TV on as loud as he can with a shooty bang-bang film. And like, the cops, even before they get to the apartment, are like, oh because um, like they can hear it in the hallway and, and all of that and, you know it's all going well and then one of them wants to use the bathroom and it's like hmm that's definitely where the bodies are and, and you'll see the like the drip of blood from the shower curtain that the cop just doesn't notice but like yeah all of that so so tense and you would think even his body language would rumble him where he will not show his back to them because there's a gun in his waistband which he's allowed to have but like you know, if there's just been a report of a shooting and you've got a gun on you, I think they would be more inclined to look your apartment over. Especially if you've got it on you when the police walk in the door, I feel is like the <laughs> ultimate signifier that something something's gone wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's basically the exact same scene where like um, Mickey etc. arrive and he's got to like pretend he's just come out the shower and he's got like the gun under the second towel um, and, and all of that stuff and Violet calling and pretending to be. Gino, etc., uh, or she's pretending to be someone and like luring them away and like you know, right? You're gonna pretend I'm Gino. We're gonna agree right now. You're gonna give me half of the money, etc., etc. I'm gonna come out and run with you. But she's got no leverage whatsoever. So as soon as they're all gone, he's like, yeah, no, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> So she does, of course, run and call them, but like initially well thought out by her, but in reality, all she's got is the word of a man that is very clearly untrustworthy. So, but you know, so tense and so fun, like to briefly have that. And this movie is basically after the the half hour mark and exercise intention, and yeah, yeah. from that first scene where they're all sat around, kind of like debating who's going to open the chest or who's going to open the the briefcase, <laughs> to the cops coming round 
to then Violet calling Corky. And, and you can hear the phone through the wall and everything. <laughs> which, which again, feels like a very Matrix-like touch when you've got the scene where they, they're climbing through the walls and that police mm-hmm. officer hears them calling around in there. But again, so much more tense in this movie because obviously the entire thing is like, she might have a gun, but like immediately when Caesar hears the thing, he's like, fuck are you doing? What are you planning with the next door neighbor? Because he's already gone off the deep end in terms of his paranoia. And it's yeah. why I love Joey Pant so much in this movie is because he is fielding 15 different emotions. He has to be <laughs> cool, calm, and collected whilst also going insane from like what's going on here. He's playing everything so well. And I think there's a reason why he becomes kind of the Wachowski's like person that he picks up and drops into lots of different projects. Obviously, he's not in lots of them. And like sometimes, especially when you get to Sensei, where he's just playing one of the character's fathers, he's having a stripped down role. But like these first two movies, I feel like Joe Pants injects so much energy into both The Matrix and Bound. You did push for Joey Pants should have got Best Supporting Actor for The Matrix nomination and I wouldn't quite go with you but yeah, no, he's undoubtedly like such a such a charismatic presence and like part of what they didn't estimate is that like, you know, he immediately is like, hmm, you and Johnny are in cahoots, you must stay as well, kind of thing and like, you know, that he's so paranoid about absolutely everything and like, I don't know if he knows that Violet is a sex worker and like is having men over while he's away and, and stuff like that but I don't know if there's any like residual resentment and jealousy there and at the end like Mickey is very much like cracking onto Violet and Violet gently letting him down with the world's most awkward kiss which is fantastically done <laughs> such a paranoid man such a a man with a temper yeah and such a violent man so yes, repeatedly I mean, Corky must... keeps almost <laughs> being free or almost taking him out and then just just getting her face punched in repeatedly which and i know obviously it it lends into that stereotype of like men harming women obviously Mm. the caveat here is that the women do win in the end they they get one over on him blah blah like but obviously it still reinforces the like the if you're going to make a movie why are you centering it around violence on women or violence or Mm. or sexual violence or these kind of things like it's it's an inherent issue and Mm. i think and uh, you know he is a villain like it's not like like there is this thing as well of like you know bad people do bad things in movies like it's it's they're supposed to but then there is the counter argument of like you know are you doing cheap things like sexual assault is often used for shock value just to make you like be like oh i hate that man and it's like well did you need to do that kind of thing i I think it's that ultimate argument which is like if there were more movies that centered their violence in this like in this movie which i feel does have a thematic reason for why it's happening it becomes a lot more palatable than if it wasn't a thing that happened in every single goddamn movie that came out yeah it wasn't that kind of like it it, like because this movie is just another thing in a systemic trend it comes off worse than if we did not have movies that didn't center on this like when you get to a movie that genuinely handles sexual assault in an interesting and nuanced way it can still feel exhausting because it's the fifth movie you've seen in a week that is dealing with those topics. Yeah, I think like even even something as as brilliant as I may destroy you, it's like oh god, this this is so heavy. There's so much of this everywhere all the time. But you know, not to detract from how good that is and how personal a story that is. But yeah, it's just it is the thing about it that bothered me a little bit. That it, yeah. it's it's just so extreme in its violence, and it's like I'm not saying Corky's having a fun time, but she does kind of take it in stride a little bit and isn't. 
intimidated. It's not like she's a wailing, blubbering mess while he's punching her, like, can happen in these things. So she briefly escapes and, like, lures him. You know, there's, like, boot prints of the paint going into the bathroom, and then, and then you get in the bathroom and, like, the boots are there and she's not, and then she attacks him with a with a wrench with, with I forgot, a, a rat, I don't know, whatever it is. But then he does overpower her and then he starts torturing her. And, and in the face of it, she's like, you know, either shoot me or get that cut out of my fucking face kind of thing like she is defiant to the end and everything they set up the pliers early on when they're torturing Shelley I'm going to ask you ten times and they cut off one of his fingers and then it sort of cuts away but like you know he is he is all geared up to cut her finger off with them I don't know it's like I'm going to cut Violet's fingers off one at a time until you tell me or whatever and they are saved by the bell and we will never know what was going to happen there I guess her being so defiant and like you know she has done prison time like she is a rough and ready sort of person. I don't know if that does take any of this off compared to like a, a Mika woman getting just violently assaulted by this big scary man. I mean, I think I think it just leads into the entire point, which is like fundamentally, it's a movie about how women have to tread lightly around yeah. violent men yeah. for fear of this happening. And obviously, yeah. obviously, like the fact that it happens is disturbing to some degree. But I do think it lends into the themes that like the the fundamental movie is like, especially in light of kind of like the violence that is exhibited upon the LGBT community. Yeah. But this is a very real fear that if someone does find out about your true nature, you're going to be visited violence upon. And I think it's yeah, part absolutely. Of the, like, the one thing I want to like kind of praise the movie on is this is a movie called Bound, featuring queer women, and it resists the urge to make them be into like BDSM. <laughs> yes, all, I feel all, like that would that all would the gays like, are deviants. They all are into the leather and BDSM. Of course. Exactly, and that isn't to say that it isn't an intrinsic part of the queer community is to have yeah. leather and BDSM as part of it but it's imagine this movie if their sex scene is Corky tying up Violet or Violet tying up Corky and then you you juxtapose that with Corky in the in the cupboard with with us it begins to get a little bit gross where it's kind of like comparing consensual sexual activities to things that are gone here and like sexualizes the scenes of them being bound and held against their will by man I mean maybe someone could do an interesting version of that but I think I do want to praise the movie for like resisting the temptation to vilify those communities and instead this is just this is just bad men doing bad things to yeah. women and queer so people. That, that word applies everywhere except the place you would expect it to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Like, if someone told you it's like a sexy lesbian thriller and it's called Bound, your mind immediately casts the scene where they are into rope play or whatever and like, no, it's, 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 it's all metaphor, there is no literal well, she is literally bound because she's a hostage, but like, it's not what you think it's going to be. We're basically at that kind of like final scene, like, I love the chase through well, Violet and Caesar up and down the stairs where <laughs> Violet takes him all the way to the bottom, gets in the elevator and goes up to the top and Caesar's just like, oh my fucking god I do not have to go back up these stairs <laughs> Poor other residents of this building just so much, just... <laughs> happening at all times yeah and then you know calling calling mickey and like you know you're fucked like mickey is coming back so you you better run basically i mean i adore anything where you've got like a high contrasted color that you're gonna do things with so so caesar stood in the paint and like <laughs> saying to violet that like you're not gonna shoot me if you would if you were gonna shoot me you would have done it years ago i know how i've treated you for all these years like if you wanted out of this relationship you would have done this god knows how long ago and yeah. violet taking the opportunity to shoot him and you get the fantastic like joy pants lying in the paint with mm -hmm. the the blood kind of like oozing out around him making yeah. this like 
I, I, I love it. It looks great. Yeah, yeah, Pope, yeah, it does. Yeah, like you know, you're revisiting kind of the early encounters with Corky and Violet of you know the trope of the you don't know me, the sort of repressed woman who has been told she is one thing for a long time and is like, no, 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 I, I am, I am not this. I am, I am something else. I can be more kind of thing. And like you know, see, you know, you don't know me, and then shoots him. And then at the end, for the final lines to be sort of like, do you know what the difference between us is, or whatever? And it's like nothing, but that completely but you know Corky coming to accept like no yeah you're a bad bitch let's let's go be gay do crime it's great the sense of geography that is lent that apartment and the bit by spending all of your time there you understand the layout of it all you know where their bathroom is you know like you know stairs the elevator all of that um you know how all of that works and I guess it's just that it's come up before where like trying to overcome challenges that have been imposed upon you in the form of a limited budget or whatever can lead to some of the best art and i think whether they intended it or not setting it entirely in that apartment building except for when uh, corky gets so turned on by her initial conversation with violet she just goes out to try and bang anyone she can the rest of the movie playing out in that apartment is apartment block is fantastic it really helps with the tension to really understand the environment they're in I would say. And I think they also understand that they can't really spend much time. So like, the, the only other thing they have outside of the apartment is when they go to Johnny's apartment to try and find the money. It's the only other one. Even then, like it's just kind of like, here's a destroyed space. Yeah. But they realise how well that geography kind of lends itself to this movie, where they literally go like, well, Corky doesn't have anything in her apartment. This is just, <laughs> em- this is just an empty room. Like We can't yeah. expect you to understand the geography of both of these things. No. Um, so you were just going to say, like you, yeah. you know Violet and C's apartment. But that's it. To the point where, like, Mickey comments that he's changed all the furniture. Um, yes. Because, because he's, like, you know, he's laid a rug down over the bloodstain. There's no time to clean it. Just put a giant rug over it. Um, and, like, you know, moving the furniture in such a way and, and you, all of that. And he's like, oh, you've changed the furniture. And it's it's plausible because we've seen him here and we've spent so much time there that you would notice. Oh, you've changed where everything is in this apartment in the last day, two days. I don't know when he was supposed to have last been there. But all great stuff and, like, a great great three-hander three great performances i wish gina gershon were in it more but we'll take it because joey pants is a towering performer in this and like i do i do want to give like the, the scenes of gershon and lily like communicating through the walls are so good and again so erotic that like <laughs> it is the only way that corky kind of shows up for the, for the middle stretch of this movie but like i do think that those scenes in particular are iconic and something that people do really really love but yeah like it is a shame that like i understand it there isn't really any way that you can get gershon involved in the action without fundamentally changing the script or or subverting the tension in it because the only other option is she shows up before the cops arrive and it's just another wrinkle in terms of fact that she's bound for more of the movie as opposed Mm. to the first version where she is at least able to react and presumably is ready to go in at a moment's notice the moment that caesar starts inflicting violence on on violet which she does like the moment she hears that violet's in trouble immediately makes her way to the apartment breaks in using her earring lockpicks and then gets cold cut as you say oh god yeah she's so cool the the lockpicks and the earring yeah it's good it's great I just that that is my one gripe is wish they found an organic way to keep her in the movie but a minor thing 
still a very, very good time. And obviously a formative text for people who are not you or me. There we go. And that was Bound, our movie that we did. I mean, okay, like, to, to say I'm sad we're not doing The Matrix, but also I'm glad we get to talk <laughs> about something that not many people talk about. Like, if, yeah. if we're going to do a trade-off of this, it's like, I would rather cover the movie that did $7 million rather than the thing that changed cinema, even if I'm going to make the claim that The Matrix is one of my five favourite movies of all time, is the fundamental thing. Like, And now we both have that, where we both had to give up one of our five favourite movies of all go. time. There we go. Now you can understand that. I was like, mm, but could we? To be transparent, you were at one point like, this is the one movie we should break the rules for. But no, we must stick to them. Yeah, if you didn't if you didn't get to kiss, kiss, bang, bang. Yeah, yeah. And it's not like we haven't had a chance to discuss Shane Black on this podcast. No, no. And you know, we did we did the Addenda podcast and, and I talked about it. I mean, if you would like to just say your piece on The Matrix now or we can hold it's, it. It's just a fucking perfect movie. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's just, it's just it's really just, fucking good, isn't it? <laughs> it's perfect. Obviously, there's interesting stuff to talk about with like the transfeming and stuff in, in The Matrix, but you also get to discuss that here with Bound. Obviously, through a different lens, but like there is fun, like these, especially these early movies, there's a lot of talk about where the Wachowskis end up in their like own personal journey in these first two movies, especially, yeah. which I feel gets subsumed by them moving into not to say that the reloads and revolutions don't have ideas of like personal identity and whatnot, but like they're they're more interested in bigger philosophical things than the first two movies are in a lot yeah. of ways. Yeah. Sorry for you, I guess. <laughs> So next week, mm. a little bit late for Halloween, based on release dates, but we are discussing Scream. Hell yeah. One of the ones I've been most looking forward to. Should be a good time. I'm, I'm excited. I think this is the first movie that we've ever discussed that I'm going to go see in a cinema yeah. rather than watch it at home on DVD, just because obviously we're recording all these in October. The local repertory cinema to me is playing Scream kind of like quite consistently over the next month. So I'm going to go uh, see that. We're, we're looking to record on Halloween itself as well, which is cool. Always yeah. fun. Always fun. I'll record in a screen mask, which I'm sure will not properly <laughs> any more than my cold has today. Okay. I mean, an unnecessary piece of commitment in, a, in an audio medium, but fine. Okay, let's finish the play we always do. Matthew. Yes. Will there be movies? Maybe if I can figure out... I mean, I understand sometimes actors don't want to come back, but the decision to recast Gina Gershon and Jennifer Tilly with Kanye West and Kim Kardashian for Bound 2, really weird decision. <laughs> That was, that was a joke just for me. Yeah, basically. Just, just for me. I don't think anyone <laughs> else who listens to this podcast will appreciate that. Well, I just did. Well, you know. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.